Well, that was a sermon, a sermon in a song. So let's just say the benediction and head out. That was, thank you all so much. Thank you. Uh, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles um, or the Pew Bible there. It's provided for you to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, you'll find that on page 826 of the Pew Bible. I should have said this at the beginning for those who I haven't met. Uh, my name is Davis Morgan. I'm uh, the RUF uh, campus pastor here. Uh, so one of your missionaries, essentially, uh, on the campus of Southern Miss. Um, so if we haven't met, I'm Davis. Uh, would love to meet you. Um, and if I can, just quick moment of personal privilege while you're finding the passage. Um, a, a lot of you have been touched by the, the ministry of RUF over the last 50 years. You, you may know this, that we're getting ready to celebrate uh, our 50-year anniversary here at the end of the month. We would love uh, for you to be part of that weekend. Uh, there's more information about that on the TVs in the hallways. Um, but we are also getting ready to take uh, a group of students to the beach at, uh, midway through May to RUF Summer Conference. And that's actually something that you can help with if you're interested. Um, this month only, Thursdays in April, I'm sorry this feels like a commercial, Thursdays in the month of April, Mo Bay Beignet Company across the street from campus is donating uh, a percentage of their profits to the ministry of RUF. So if you like beignets, and you do, uh, Thursdays in April, you can help send students to summer conference because whatever money we raise through that work is going to go towards scholarships for students who need financial aid to get to this conference. A lot of you uh, have been to or have sent your children or your grandchildren to that conference, and we would love uh, your help sending uh, this generation of students to that. Let me also say... Um, I bit off more than I can chew. We are going to read the first 22 verses of Matthew 21. We're really only going to look closely at the first 10, um, but we're going to read it all. Um, and then just one more acknowledgement, if you, if you don't mind. Is I, I just want to acknowledge the fact that, that after a week like we've all just lived through, a lot of you are coming to worship this morning a little raw, a little wounded, a little exhausted, maybe. Uh, it's been an incredibly difficult week in our world and uh, in our region, in our state, and, and in the life of our church in many ways. And so you might be coming this morning feeling sadness and tears and pain and what I want to invite you to do as we open this passage is just to ask the question, could it be that rather than those tears and those pains, rather than that heartache being a barrier to worship, for it actually to be a vehicle for you to worship God, to feel the beating of his own heart, to feel yourself conformed more and more to his image, to hear his fatherly voice. What if weeks like this put you more in touch with the story of Scripture than any others? Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples 
saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone sees, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you not read? Out of the mouths of infants, nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Amen. The grass withers, flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Join me, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, this is your word. It's without error in any part. It's written for your glory and for our good. And we are so in need of the good news it proclaims. Good news of a king who's coming, a king we desperately need. So open our eyes. Holy Spirit, we pray, soften our hearts that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would hide me behind the cross so that we might see Jesus this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, In a 2003 issue of The Atlantic magazine, a journalist recorded a story 
he experienced in a small, relatively obscure jazz venue in New York City's Greenwich Village. It was a Tuesday night in August, not a big night in terms of booking musical acts, and so they had a music a, you know, a band who you would book on a Tuesday night in August. Not particularly a big crowd draw, but some good musicians and. Uh, the journalist writes that they were good, but they were, they were what you would expect at this case. Um, and then his eye fixes on the trumpet player, who is sort of in the back, not facing the band or the audience. He's sort of blowing his trumpet into the floor until he comes forward into the light to play a solo. And this journalist just locks his eyes on him because... It's Wynton Marsalis. Now, you may not know that name, but maybe you do, because the name Wynton Marsalis is synonymous with jazz music, or at least was for many decades around the turn of the millennium. Uh, Wynton Marsalis, if you grew up uh, playing trumpet, you probably uh, had a teacher who had you watch a Wynton Marsalis instructional video. Um, if you've watched Ken Burns' documentaries about jazz, you've seen Wynton Marsalis talk about the history of jazz music. And, and so Wynton Marsalis, in this relatively unknown place, with this relatively unknown band, comes forward into the light. He's been off to the side, and he comes up to the microphone to play an unaccompanied solo of this apparently extremely classic jazz standard called I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. It's this hauntingly sad tune and, and Marsalis pulls every drop of anguish out of this tune and it's just masterful. It's magical. He's in this little place and he's, he's pouring out these notes in this melodic, romantic way, and he's cresting this final climactic sequence, and the crowd is in awe, and he's slowly, powerfully sounding each note out, phrase by phrase, word by word. I don't stand a ghost of a chance, and the audience is captured in utter silence. And there's a beat, there's just a pause, and then a cell phone goes off. This is 2003, so... People are shuffling in their purses. People are fumbling with their keys. And this journalist writes on his little notepad these two words. Magic ruined. But here's what happens next. As Wynton Marsalis, he still has his trumpet. He's at the microphone. He raises one eyebrow at the person whose cell phone goes off. He waits a beat and goes. And he plays the cell phone tune. He plays it again, and he plays it again, and he changes the keys, and he embellishes it, and he begins riffing on it and playing jazz music. And before anybody knows, he swept it back a, a few keys over, back into, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with 
you. And the room explodes. The ovation is stunning. Why? Because the magic had been ruined. But in the hands of the master, it was restored. That's what's happening in the triumphal entry, friends. That's what all the palm branches are about. You see, all of us, and especially on a week like this, we long for restoration. We know that we live in a world that's been ruined. We feel that the magic has, ruined, has been ruined in our world, in our hearts, in our bodies, in our souls, in our relationships, in our society, our families. And on weeks like this, we feel it in a unique way. And, and maybe you're tempted, like me, in the face of catastrophes and tragedies and tornadoes and murders and shootings, to ask, how can it ever be right again? Who could possibly restore this? In the face of so much death and destruction, how could it possibly be restored? And friends, that's what Palm Sunday and Easter is about It's the king who comes who's able to restore us. C.S. Lewis captured it perfectly in the little poem, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Friends, that's the king who's coming to you this morning, the king who can restore you. The king who restores all things. And we see this morning two things about this king that I want us to look at. First, the king's authority. And second, the king's victory. So the first thing we see is the king's authority. Jesus has spent three years, like Wynton Marsalis, off in the shadows, in obscure places, avoiding major cities, avoiding crowds, getting out of the limelight whenever he can. And scholars will say that he's been keeping what they call the messianic secret. And you'll notice this if you read the Gospels, that he performs a miracle and, and, and people are excited, but he says, shh, not yet. Don't tell anyone. Not yet. The messianic secret has been kept up to this point, but now it's time. Now it's time for him to be revealed. And so he finally comes to Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of the kingdom of Israel, as the Messiah king. And from the outset, there is no question about who is in charge. Right, the, the opening verses, he orchestrates everything about this. Before he's even gone into the city, he tells the disciples, this is what is going to happen. It's the same authority that he's displayed all through his ministry. When he performs miracles and they show his authority over nature, when he, when he looks at a storm and says, you be quiet... Or when he looks at a leper and says, I am willing, you be clean. Or when he looks at someone who's lame and says, both I am forgiving your sins and take up your bed and walk. He's demonstrating his authority. Because he's the master. He's the king. And even before he comes into this capital city, he makes it clear who is setting the agenda. 
And even the events that follow in this story, the stories after the triumphal entry, show that authority. Dan Doriani writes it this way, that that by by driving out the merchants and toppling their tables, Jesus asserts himself to be the temple's Lord and judge. And that's the same thing in a prophetic way that he's figuring in the fig tree, in the withering of the fig tree, is that he is the one who gets to come and look for the harvest. He is the one who gets to inspect and declare a verdict. Tim Keller puts it this way, that the only person who gets to come into a building and describe it as my house and start rearranging the furniture is the owner. He's the master. Jesus is letting you know one more time that he is who he says he is. Which means that we have to make a verdict about Jesus' claims, don't we? You see, he's either the king or he's crazy. He's either the king or he's crazy. C.S. Lewis, again, puts it this way. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept him as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, Lewis says, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. Something worse, excuse me. You can shut him up for a fool, Lewis says. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But, Lewis says, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. You see, in Jesus displaying his authority for us, We're on the horns of a dilemma. That we either fall down or we raise our fist. That's the king's authority. Now secondly, the king's victory. You see, Jesus, in verse 8, comes into these uh, the streets on the donkey and the crowd spreads their cloaks on the road they lay out these palm branches and as Jesus passes by they cry out hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest this is something they recognize it, it's a royal procession it's it's a march of triumph it was something that kings and rulers did they recognize it. They would, they would parade down the streets of the city like this. 200 years before this, the Jewish hero Simon Maccabeus had had su- just such a procession into Jerusalem, riding through the streets, greeted by the crowds as a conquering hero. But Jesus' procession is different because he has a different kind of victory. One, one theologian even describes it as a satire or even a parody of a triumphal march. Because he's riding on a donkey. You see, Jesus constantly upends our expectations. 
Matthew quickly points out the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You see, his triumph comes not in pomp, but in humility. Not in grandeur, but in gentleness. His, his victory is wrapped in his own selflessness. And, and if we follow him beyond this story, we're going to see him. He doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't go to the Roman fortress in Jerusalem or the citadel. He goes to the temple. And he cleanses it. He does. But then, and Matthew is the only writer who tells us this, then he welcomes in the lame and the blind and the temples filled with children. And he heals those who need healing. And he comes into this house that, that was designed for healing and has become a place of unhealing. And he heals the lame and the blind. And he welcomes the praises of the children. But we often under, misunderstand this king, don't we? The crowds misunderstood him too. We want him to be a warrior, but he's a healer. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. But we often misunderstand him just like the crowds. Jesus, John tells us, excuse me, in his account, John tells us that they were waving palm branches... That's why we call it Palm Sunday. Palm branches, though, were actually associated with Judean nationalism. It was a symbol of the hope of political liberation, of breaking the chains of Roman oppression. There's actually coins that show us this. If, if you're a Hunger Games fan, it was like the Mockingjay. It was a symbol of resistance. It was a symbol of Judean patriotism. But that's not what this king comes to bring. Friends, that's not the victory he comes to bring or to achieve. And that frustrates our expectations. Because, because we want a king who's a warrior. We want a king like the crowds wanted. We don't want a humble king. We want you to go march up to the palace and get rid of Herod and get rid of Pilate and sit on the throne. We want you to win the battles that we need won. It's like the opening scene of, of that famous movie, Patton, when he says, Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. And that's what we bring to the text this morning in our own hearts, a lot of us. That we think restoration comes through worldly power. But the king who restores is the one who wins by losing. He's the one who wins by losing. That's how Jesus brings victory. In Jesus' kingdom, the way up is down. The way to be great in Jesus' kingdom is to become nothing. The way to triumph in Jesus' kingdom is to be martyred. The way to be the greatest is to be the servant of all. And that's why he doesn't come on a war horse. He's not here for a military battle. He's on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace. It's, it's as if we want Jesus to come rolling down Hardy Street in a Sherman tank. 
but he really comes in a rickety minivan. No threat. No one is threatened by your minivan. He's a king riding a donkey, which means he's bringing peace. Christian, your king is coming to you bringing peace. He's the one who's able to restore what was ruined because of his authority and his victory. Now, the, the crowds might not understand that. They, they probably don't really understand what they're saying. I wonder if maybe the children did when they cried out, Hosanna! You probably have a footnote of what Hosanna means. It's a transliteration of a phrase from Psalm 118 that literally means, Save us now! See, they're saying what we need to be saying. Not, let's go fight a battle, but save us, King Jesus. And here's the question for you this morning, friends, is are you like these children? Are you like the lame and the blind who need to be saved? Because the good news, friends, is that if this king saves you, there's nothing in all creation that can truly harm you. There's no pain, no sadness, no criticism, no strife, no rejection that can truly hurt you because he has made you safe. My life is hid with Christ on high. Paul writes, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, the Bible says actually you conquer through these things. There's no death, no cancer, no tornado, no fire, no shooting, no tragedy. Nothing that can stop King Jesus from keeping you safe. You know what that means? It's that whatever he does allowed to come into your life is coming from a loving Savior who could not possibly do anything other than your good to you. Someone reminded me this week from Dr. Ralph Davis that the hand that holds us has a nail through it. Which means whatever he calls you to suffer now is because he is so devoted to your eternal security and blessedness that he would not withhold it from you. And make no mistake, friends, after a week like this, We long for restoration. And there are a lot of evils that we long to see done away with. We do long for a king on a war horse, don't we? Make no mistake, friends. Jesus rides a donkey in our story, but there is a day coming when he will ride a horse. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, he's the king with all authority in heaven and on earth, with all victory. And when that day comes, friends, he will do battle with everything that has caused pain and wickedness and sadness in all of his good creation. And the prophets say, they shall not hurt or destroy anymore in all my holy mountain. The day's coming when the king of kings will wipe away every tear from every eye. And on that day, Tim Keller points this out, you won't have to worry about cutting down palm branches because the palm trees will wave themselves. Isaiah 55, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Psalm 96, then all the trees of the forest shall shall sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. But before he comes, friends, before he comes to reign and restore, he comes to be crushed. Before he rides a war horse, he bears a cross. And that's why we can trust him to restore us, isn't it? But don't, don't you see that the only king who can restore you is the one who was crushed for you. The only king who can re- restore you is the one who was destroyed for you. The only king who can restore the magic is the one who bore the curse. The one who lifts up the palm branch of victory is the one who was lifted up on the awful tree. That is the one who can undo the grave because he went into it first. And it could not conquer him. And so the lion of the tribe of Judah will conquer. That's what we celebrate and remember this day as we look into Holy Week. Wrong will be right. When Aslan comes in sight, at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Let's pray. King Jesus, our hearts break forth and cry out, save us now. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. We pray that you would come down and ride enthroned into our own hearts and make your home in our hearts. That each of us would truly cry out to you. That even in our hearts, which before you are as barren fig trees and corrupted temples. Oh, our good shepherd. And good king, would you cleanse us by your grace and heal us by your power and draw us to yourself to bow the knee, to rejoice in hope and to wait for you. For we ask in your holy name. Amen.